So growing up, there was this thing that they would do, and it was called the word of the day. It's like to expand your vocabulary. So I have a word of the day, and it's this word. It's umbrageous. Does anybody know what that means? Ah, it's a word of the day then. Here's what it means. Apt to be offended. What an appropriate word, huh? <laughs> There's a lot of umbrageous things happening today. And you may ask, well, why would you have that word for the word for today? Well, ladies, let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 3 and just see if you might be offended by some of what it says in there. So let's go. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Take offense to anything in there? Let me tease out a couple that maybe, maybe you might be like, huh? Number one, wives, it says, submit to your husbands. Do you love that one? Are you like, I love that verse. How about this? Don't braid your hair, don't wear gold, only wear clothing that you personally made on your Singer sewing machine. You like that? All right, how about you have to obey your husband and call him Lord? There's some husbands that are like, yes. I love First Peter, this is an, oh, I'm gonna read this book again. Or you're the weaker vessel. Men are great, women are weak. You like that one? So there is a way of reading this text where you begin to think, man, the Bible, I knew it. It's misogynistic. It's prejudice against women. It's, ah, I knew the Bible was that way. I think if you get that from this text, you're not actually figuring out what it meant to the original hearers and applying it to us today, which is the only way to read the Bible. It meant something when Peter wrote it. We need to figure out what it meant then, and then we have to say, what does that same thing, what does that have to do with us today? And I think if you do that, what you find is this. If you're not defensive about it, you find that it's actually very gospel-centered, very gospel-offensive. It takes the gospel forward. So that's what I'm gonna try to do with three points. So number one, here's what Peter's saying. It's evangelism. 
And it's verses one and two. So Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by, your, by the conduct of the wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay? So just one side point. It says, wives, win your husbands without a word. Why would Peter say that? Because sometimes is it the tendency of a wife when she sees her husband and she wants all this great stuff for her husband that she tends to try to win her husband with words? Don't we have a word for that? Like magging or sagging or nagging, that's it. <laughs> Does that work well? Mm, mm. Peter is saying, yeah, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. And then we read this, and if what you noticed was there are a lot of verses, six verses for ladies. How many verses for men? One. Now, why is that? Is it because Peter is really getting on the ladies and showing them what it's like, and hey, guys are okay? Is it ladies talk more so they'll read more? Probably not. If we could take ourselves back from this church and go back 2,000 years to the churches that Peter is pastoring and trying to help, here's what you'd find. The majority of people in church 2,000 years ago were women. Why? Why were women flocking to the church? One word, sex. That's why. Because back 2,000 years ago, in fact, Peter grabs, or Paul, I should say, grabs a phrase that we use all the time 2,000 years ago. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. He says this, meat is for the belly, and the belly is for meat. It's actually a sexual innuendo. It's this, a man would say, if I have an appetite, if I'm hungry, I'm gonna go eat a steak. If I'm thirsty, I'm gonna get something to drink. If I'm tired, I'm gonna take a nap. And if I wanna have sex, I will have sex. It's just another body appetite that I should be able to satisfy in any way that I want. And that was the culture 2,000 years ago. So it was very common for a man to have a wife who bore him children, to have what was called a palake, which was just a woman for sex, to have a heteri, which was a woman that you would take out on the town and have conversations with and drinks with, and then to visit the temple prostitutes. So it was common for a man to control three or four women, but really be committed to none of them. That was the culture 2,000 years ago. In fact, I have this quote, it's from the New Bible Commentary, and I've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again, because I just did a wedding last night, and listen to this quote. It was tradition on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute or a woman of easy virtue, it was not a sign that he did not love her, but simply a way of gratifying his passions. At the wedding ceremony, if I had said that last night at the wedding ceremony I did, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be in the hospital or the morgue, right? 
I got three daughters. Yeah, you ain't doing that. It's crazy. That was it, because that was the culture of the day. Crazy to me. Here's what you must know. Wherever the gospel has gone, it has elevated the role of women. Peter here says, verse seven, they're joint heirs. They're not second-class citizens. They're not, hey, over here, do their own things. You can't just play with them. They're not toys. No, they're equal inheritors of the coming kingdom. It's always elevated the role of women. And so all of a sudden you have this group of people that are treating women differently and saying, you know what? Sex isn't an appetite. No way. It's whole body unifying that happens inside the confines of marriage. And marriage is one man, one wife, one life. And women said, we love that. Because this thing here, we don't like it. This four women, do whatever you want, commit to none. No, we, that isn't working for us. And they flock to the church. And so that's why the majority is, he knows his audience. Yeah, I'm talking to women. And so Peter here says, listen, gals, your marriage is great evangelism. It's great evangelism. The way that you're walking this out right now, how you are doing this, it's evangelism. I think today, Marriage is even more important in evangelism. You know why? Because it's like this. Imagine you doing something really important in your life and only having a 50% chance of it succeeding. So you decide to buy a house, but there's a 50% chance that you will lose that house to foreclosure. Who's buying houses then? Nobody. I'm not playing that. It's 50-50. Imagine going to college, but there's only a 50% chance of you getting a job when you graduate from college. Who's going to college? I'm not going to college if it's only 50%. Imagine you get in your car and you only have a 50% chance of making it to your destination. Probably means you're driving a Volkswagen bus. You wouldn't do it, right? Well, that's marriage right now. In America, half of marriages end in divorce. You want to up that? You want to increase that by 50%. You want to get to about 70% success rate. Go to church. So when sociologists study groups, they find regular church attenders have the most solid, stable marriages. You get up to 70, 75%. That's how. You want a good evangelistic tool? Your neighbors, your coworkers, the people in your family, the way that they see you love your spouse is evangelism. The way that you treat them. Men, not talking about your wife like the old lady. I gotta get home to the old lady. The old ball and chain. If instead you're like, she fills my tank. I can't wait to get home to her. That is a evangelistic message. What's your secret, man? That's not how I look at my wife. You guys seem to love each other. You enjoy being around each other. Wow, it's evangelism. It's evangelism. That's what you're supposed to do. And here, here's the thing. Peter's addressing the issue in the time. And it was lots of wives coming to church and very few husbands. The, the statistics have not changed. Like when they study, like when a wife gets saved and she starts coming to church, very few husbands follow. And the kids rarely do. That if a wife alone is a believer in a home, very few kids end up following the faith. But 
If a husband believes and comes into church, the majority of wives follow and kids end up adopting the faith. It's the same problem. Nothing's changed in that. So I know right now there are probably women in here whose husbands don't follow Jesus. And you find a battle with getting your kids to come to church and, and it's just hard. So what do you do? Peter says, you'll win them when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You respect your husband. You just respect your husband. There's no way your husband is 100% evil, right? He's not purposefully running over puppies on the way to work. He's not biting off the heads of bats for breakfast. He's doing something respectful. And you find things that he does respectful and you say, I am happy that you do that. You, you work hard at your job. You take care of the house. You love me. You're a good dad. You take a shower. You comb your hair. You're bipedal, which means you walk upright. I'm thankful for that. You find anything and you respect them for that. And Peter says, Peter says, that's how you win them. Not by nagging, not by, uh, by respecting them. Marriage is evangelism. It's absolute evangelism. This world is desperate to see two men living like God create, what did I just say? Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's about my biggest blunder yet. And I've had some good ones. So good. There's no saving that. I'm like thinking, how do you, no? Just a complete failure. The world is looking for marriages between a man and a woman that are brilliant and beautiful. The two become one. They're looking for that. And when that happens, when that happens, it's evangelism. What is your secret? How are you doing this? It's evangelism, number one. Number two, I think this is real feminism. So the next verses, verses three and four, it says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We live in a culture now that says you are how you look. You are what you wear. And billions are spent every year so people can look a certain way on clothing, on cosmetics, on plastic surgery. There's just billions. You are what you look like. God's word says no. No. And Peter says, like, you know, braiding of hair. It's not, hey, she braided her hair. She must be a hooker. That's not what he's saying. It's once again, what did this mean 2,000 years ago? So if you went back 2,000 years, braiding hair, wearing gold jewelry, and certain kinds of clothes, it signaled something. It signaled she was a woman of power, a woman of prestige, a woman who was at the top, privilege. That's what it did. Don't we get that today, right? It's, we wear certain things that show, man, we've got razzle-dazzle, we've got bling, we've got chi-chi, we've got it, right? We got money. 
right? I'm rich, I'm beautiful, I have a great body, and I'm gonna show it off. We get that. So in church or the restaurant or wherever it is, if a woman comes in and she is dressed to the nines and she's setting off seismographs, here's what happens. The men look at her and say, oh, I wish my wife looked like that. And the women look at her and say, I'm going to kill her. That's what happens. And so clothing and the way that we present ourselves, what it can be and what happened here and happens all the time is this. We use them to compete, to say, look at me. I'm the coolest, I'm the trendiest, I'm the sexiest, I'm the wealthiest, I'm the thinnest, I'm the, whatever it is. I'm the hippest. I would even say in certain circles, you can use clothing to say, I'm the most modest. Look at my bonnet. I bought it from an Amish grandma in Indiana. Well, look at my dress. I made it from a Mervyn's curtain, right? You can compete in all kinds of ways with clothing. And Peter is saying, don't do that. The root is this craving for self-elevation. Don't do that. And so Peter says, you fight that with two things. First, your conduct. First, your conduct. It's not about what you wear, right? Godly women are not eye candy for men. That's not what they are. They're supposed to be known for what they do. Isn't that the cry of the women's movement in the 20th century? Like women should be known more for, not for what they look like for, for what they do. That was the cry. Peter's saying the same thing. And then it's not about outward stuff. It's about character. The hidden, what's inside. That women are not just hangers for clothing. But what's inside is more important. Their thoughts, their ideas. That's what matters. That's what matters most. I mean, this is radical. 2,000 years ago, rings true today. It's about what women do. It's about the character of what's inside of them. What's sad to me is this. We've made a bunch of progress, but it feels like in the last 20 years, we are going backwards on this. So I get these reports from the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and they do these studies. And they're finding more and more body image in girls is just that early and earlier, Girls are being told, you need to act sexual. You need to look this certain way, right? Because social media is just bombarded with it. You need to look this certain way. So they're finding out that five-year-olds won't go swimming because their body doesn't look like whoever it is on their Instagram feed. They're finding eight-year-olds are now being brought into the hospital with eating disorders because they think they're fat. This is just heartbreaking to me. And we know this. The early sexualization of girls leads to child sex abuse, depression, low self-esteem, like uh, there's all, and yet it's exploding right now. And th this stuff to me just breaks my heart. The, the numbers, the staggering numbers of young ladies that believe they're supposed to have plastic surgery. A nip here, a tuck there, something. So I have a book, it's not a Christian book, but it's called Getting Real. Um, the sexualization of girls. And here's a quote from it. I'll read it for you. And I've read it before. If no one is helping a girl to appreciate her inner qualities, sounds like First Peter, and she is bombarded with images of womanhood based merely on appearance, something unbalanced begins to happen. With no anchor, she is bombarded with images of womanhood based solely on appearance. 
Her sense of self becomes more and more external and visual, eventually leading to how she appears being everything. Then this leads to the shocking research findings that most girls today hate their own bodies. I have three daughters. I read that and it broke my heart. Moms, you might wanna have a conversation with your daughters and ask them if that's true. So what are we supposed to do? I think men, we're the antidote. We're the vaccine. We're the kryptonite to this super scandal. It's how we treat our daughters and it's how we treat our wives. Husbands, you cannot tell your wife enough you're beautiful and I love you. There's not a, I don't think there's a wife in here who's like, you know what, my husband just says it to me too much. He tells me I'm beautiful too much. I wish he'd just knock it off. I haven't met that girl yet. Maybe she exists. I haven't met him yet. So we need to be saying constantly and continually to our wives, you are beautiful and I love you. And then to our daughters, yeah, we need to tell them they're beautiful, but we also need to say, I love what you do. And I love how you think. And I love the ideas that you have. That not, it's not all about, hey, girls are so pretty and boys are so, yeah, that, there's a part to that. But also, I love what you do. I love how you think. I love the ideas you have. I love the talents that God has put into your heart. Inner qualities, lifting those up as well. Because ultimately, the sexualization of girls is driven by men, is it not? Because there's a saying, it's this, sex sells, right? So you got these hot rod magazines where it's all about horsepower and cars and men's stuff. And on the cover of the hot rod magazine, who's on the cover with that car? It should be a greasy dude in coveralls like, I love this car, like kissing it. It's not, is it? It's a woman in a bikini, why? Because sex sells. We're the driver for it. We gotta be careful. Tell our wives, you're beautiful and I love you. And our girls, I love who you are, who God has made you, your inner qualities, what you do, what you're about, what you think, or the antidote. To me, this is real feminism. And where the gospel has gone, it's always elevated the role of ladies. And then lastly, I love this, just the honesty. The honesty about marriage. Look at these verses. Verse five. For this is how the holy women, and I have underlined up on the board, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What's your hope for your marriage? Is your hope that your husband will finally figure it out? That your wife will just listen? What's your hope? My first thing when I do marriage counseling with people, I say this, you cannot control your spouse. You cannot control your husband. You cannot control your wife. Stop trying. It will not work. You will get frustrated. It's not gonna work. And something weird happens in marriage, I think, because it begins with this. It begins with almost making an idol of your husband or making an idol of your wife. That's how marriage starts, right? We elevate them. We put them on this big platform like, oh, 
they're perfect, all this kind of stuff, right? And so I'll secondly say this, hey, men can make great husbands, but they make terrible gods. Women can make great wives, but they make terrible gods. And if you have elevated them up in your head this high, they will disappoint you quickly. And when they do, you're like, I'm out. I can't believe they did that, I'm out. I'm out. So here, here's what happens. Sarah, who'd she put her hope in? She hoped in God. And it says that there's this, she's afraid of something. There's fear in here. What was she afraid of? Why'd she need to put her hope in God? I'll tell you her story. Genesis 12 through 20. So Abraham decides, I've heard from God, and he did, and we're moving from what we know, family, in-laws, relatives, and we're moving across this desert 500 miles to a brand new land that we don't know. And they get to this land, and in this land, there are these powerful warlords, overlords, who had these giant harems, probably like Genesis chapter six. And they would suck in women and just bring them into their big harems. And so Abraham's like, ooh, my wife is a snap eye. She is hot. They're gonna kill me and they're gonna take my wife. So he's afraid. So what does Abraham do when he's afraid of these overlords? Does he pray? Okay, God, I know you told me to come here and we're supposed to come over here. So tell me what I'm supposed to do. Does he pray? Nope. No. Does he say, hey, let's scout this out and find the safest spot to go. And we'll move, we'll still be in the promised land, but we'll move away from these powerful overlords and we'll be somewhere safe. Nope. Does he just man up and say, bro, if you touch my wife, I'm going postal on you or Pony Express on you or Camel Express, whatever it was back then. Does he say that? Nope. Guess what he says? You need to lie. Sarah, you need to lie to protect me. You need to tell them that you're not my wife. You're my sister. So you get sucked into the harem, which would be a bad place to be, and I'll be protected. Now I struggle with that because there's just something in me that says, the man just takes it. You just take it. Whatever it means, you take it. So at night, if there's a sound at my house, if there's breaking window or breaking glass, I'm not like, hey, Charity, could you check that out? I can't find my slippers. Um, <clears throat> I'll be up here if you need me, just yell. No, man. So I'm like, really? So she had a fear. And it was his pattern, Genesis 20 tells us. Wherever he went, that was our pattern. Poor girl. So who'd she put her hope in? God. Could have been her own failing too. Because Abraham ends up sleeping with another lady to have a child. And it was Sarah's idea. A very bad idea. It was her idea. And the problems, the consequences of that just ripple throughout history. She could have had fear for her own failings. So who'd she put her hope in? She put her hope in God. How honest is that about marriage? Because when you get married, you marry a sinner. You marry a sinner. Like there's this new thing with vows and, and it's interesting to me, you know, where, where People write their own vows and, and they say their own vows and it's always like, oh, I love you and you're so perfect and you're the one for me and you're awesome and you always listen to me and we're just gonna be so compatible. It's gonna be great, yay. I think we should change that. 
I think the vow should be, I'm marrying you and I know what you are. You're gonna act selfish and stupid. You're gonna spend money on stuff that I do not agree with, right? You won't listen to me. You won't change your mind. You're gonna be thick-headed and stupid and lazy. But I'm gonna hope in God. And I do. I'm telling you, if you're engaged and you're gonna get married and you do that, that's a wedding no one will ever forget. It'll go down in history, man. It's honest. It's honest. I'm not putting my hope in you. I'm putting my hope. I'm putting my hope in God. So I have yet to see the marriage where it's, and they lived happily ever after. It just does not occur. Solomon, the wisest man in the Bible, says this about marriage. And he knew something about marriage because he'd been married 700 times. You learned something. He said, marriage is like a garden. If you see a brilliant, beautiful, fruitful, incredible garden, what does that mean? Work. Someone was weeding and tending and planting and fertilizing and working to make that garden beautiful. Marriage takes work. It's brilliant, beautiful work. But it takes work. So what's your hope? Your hope is like Sarah. Grab my spouse's heart. You change him. I can't change him. God, you change him. And if you read the story of Abraham, that's what God does. God changes Abraham. It takes a while, but God changes him. I think prayers need a lot more. I think marriages need a lot more prayer and a lot less pestering. That if you're gonna pester your spouse, then you need to balance it out with prayer, right? At least 50-50. It should be like 90-10, Right? If you spend one minute pestering, you've got nine minutes of prayer. Because you're saying, my hope is in God. My, my marriage is awesome. You know why? Because my wife prays for me. She knows me better than anyone. She knows I'm thick scold and I'm obstinate and I'm rebellious and I've got all these problems. But you know what she does? She doesn't nag me. She prays for me. Because her hope is in God. She sicks the Holy Spirit on me and it works. Right? <laughs> There's no better thing in the world than, your, than God's spirit just crushing you. Like, oh, yes, you're right. That's what she does. Her hope, her hope is in God. So I had verse seven for guys. I was gonna slam the guys too. But Friday, I was sitting there just thinking, I don't know. I just need to talk about marriage. Jesus' first Miracle was at a wedding. And I don't think that was a coincidence because marriages need miracles. They need miracles. And I know that there are people right here this morning in marriages that you are struggling. It is hard. That you're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, well, how do I help that? How in a congregation do you help that? Are you like, hey, if your marriage stinks, raise your hand, we'll pray for you. Yeah, probably not a lot of people are gonna go, ah, you know what, pray for me. She's right here and she's the problem. Like, it just doesn't feel like it's gonna work. So how do you walk that out? I know God, Hebrews 4, 12. All things are naked and open with him. He knows what's happening. He knows what happened. He knows where you're at. He knows what's happening there. 
So what's your hope for your marriage right now? If you were to just sit for a moment and say, what's my hope? Is it the stimulus money comes through? That money will just solve it. If we just had more money, that'll solve it. Is it, I just need out. I need someone else. This marriage was a mulligan. I'm starting over. It's these lies that are told to us that, you know, they're not the one, the mythical one. I know my wife is the one because I'm married to her, period. She's the one. So that whole myth thing is crazy. So what do you do? I just want to take a minute. If you're clinging to marriage and you're just like, what do I do? I want you to leave today with two things, hope and no fear. Those are my goals, hope and no fear. So number one, do you believe God? In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says this, if you have a mustard seed of faith, you can say to a mountain, be uprooted and cast into a sea. How small a faith is that? Do you believe God? Do you believe God is able? That he's able, that he's powerful. Jesus says in Mark 10, 27, he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you believe God can change your spouse? Because in Genesis 2.24, it's this poem that says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the two shall become one. How does that happen? It's a miracle. God fits two people together. The Hebrew word used often for love is dode. It's literally the intermingling of souls where just two become one. That only happens when God's at work, when God does something, where you finish each other's sentences, when you know what someone is thinking without them even saying something. It's beautiful and it's brilliant and it's what God wants. He's the one that fits two together. Do you believe that God can redeem really hard, broken situations? I think that's God's greatest work. He makes this promise to Israel. In Isaiah 61, verse three, he says, I'll give you beauty for ashes. You might feel like your marriage is a dumpster fire. God can give you beauty for ashes. That's what he can do. Do you believe? Put your hope in him. Put your hope in God. That's where our hope is supposed to be. So I just wanna pause everything for two minutes and I want us to pray. If you're married in a clinging marriage, pray for restoration. Pray for God to do a great work. Pray for God to change you, change your spouse, fit you together the way only God can do. If you're single, pray for the spouse that God has for you out there. Pray that God's doing a work in both of you right now so that when you come together, it's brilliant. If you're single and you're saying, I'm never going to get married, pray for somebody's marriage that you know is in trouble. I don't know any married trouble. Pray for me. I'll take all the prayer I can get. My wife would love that, right? Pray. So we've got two minutes. Just pray.
I pray for every marriage that's represented here this morning. I pray that our hope would be in you. You are the marriage maker. I pray that you would be forming husbands and wives to fit together better and better. I pray Proverbs 4.18, that the path of the righteous, and we've been made righteous by Jesus, would grow brighter and brighter unto that day, that the marriages, people who love you, would get richer and stronger and more brilliant that they would be preaching a message of your power and a culture that's void of it. I pray for wives whose husbands do not believe. I pray that their conduct and their respect would win their husbands and we could see salvation come to unbelieving husbands. I pray for newlyweds, Lord. I pray that they would go in with eyes wide open, that they've married a sinner. But in the midst of it, your redemption and your power and your beauty can be made manifest if we let you. That there'd be more prayer and less pestering. I pray for those that are clinging they're thinking about divorce. I pray by the power of your spirit today, you would give them hope without fear. They would know that there is a God who cares, a God who can, and a God who will redeem. Ring good from evil. Redeem, give beauty for ashes. That their hope would be firmly placed on you. So we pray for miracles. You do another miracle in a marriage this morning, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. One of the best ways to put your hope in God is at the table. That as we partake, We need to be reminded that that Friday was the most devastating day in the lives of the disciples. They couldn't believe it. Tragic, terrible, horrible. But then two days later was resurrection. That God is able to take horrible terrible situations and transform them by his resurrection power. So Jesus, today, as we partake, may we know that nothing is too difficult for you. That even death itself has been defeated 
There is no problem that you say is difficult. And so I ask for each of us in here as we eat, may you press into us your power, your authority, your greatness, your majesty, your sovereignty, that you are able. Let's eat together. And we hold the cup of forgiveness. And we have been forgiven so much. I pray that we would not be like the servant who was forgiven a great debt, millions of dollars, and then argued over a dollar and was put into jail because of it. Unforgiveness imprisons us, set us free this morning. I pray if we have unforgiveness against a spouse, against anyone, that you would in the cup of forgiveness because we have been forgiven so much that we would become conduits of that forgiveness, that we wouldn't hold on to pocket change when you promised us billions. I pray that the marriages of Edgewater would be marked by attitudes of forgiveness, that love remembers no evil, that we forget it, move on because our hope is in you and our power is found in you forgiving us. So may we this morning drink deeply of the cup of forgiveness and become people who forgive. Let's drink together. And we pray this in your name.